Good evening. I have a little bit of uh, housekeeping before we begin this evening. Um, this is our last well of the year, which is something to celebrate and also, I don't know, something to be maybe sad about for some of us here. Uh, it's been a really good year, actually. And this is a year that we've seen God do more than what we asked him to do in all kinds of ways. It's been a more important year than some of you here may realize, and even probably more important year than I think I've realized so far. In this year, God has brought us out of uh, a kind of doldrums that I think almost everyone on the globe has been living in, but that maybe has been especially difficult uh, for ministries. God's begun to take us to the other, the other shore that we've been crossing for a while. And that's in no small part because of the team that God called, uh, the, the staff of interns that God um, called to lead y'all this year alongside myself. Uh, and so I, I want to give thanks for everyone that has been an intern this year. If you would stand up, um, we want to celebrate you, please. This includes Ryan and McCall, even though they already stood up before. Yeah, very good. Yeah. And that's all the thanks you get for being an intern. <laughs> Is that measly little clap? Uh, in all seriousness, for some of these folks, several of those folks that just stood up, this is the last time that they will be here at the well, uh, at least as, um, unless, they, unless they are like the nerdy kind of people that come back and visit later on, like you two. Uh, and I hope that they do. But just be aware um, of, of the gifts that they've given and the way that this is an occasion for grief for some of them as much as it is an occasion for joy. Um, I have a, a request to ask of all of you tonight, which is that you get very excited about the Bible. Because we have a lot of it that we're going to try to get in view this evening. A whole lot of it that we're going to try to get in view. And uh, I'm actually not going to read every single verse that, that I have printed for you, or that the interns have printed for you, in, this, uh, in your bulletin. Um, so just to give you a heads up in case you're worried, you're like, wow, there's three whole chapters of Acts here, or, or two and a half whole chapters of Acts here. Um, we're going to read a good bit of that, but most of Acts 7, I'm going to spend some time expositing and what I say here in a bit. Uh, and so... And it's long. Uh, I all day long went back and forth on whether or not to go ahead and read the whole thing. I'm not above doing that. Uh, but I've decided out of the graciousness of my heart to, um, to let you save that for your small group gatherings over the course of the next week. So just to give you a heads up, I'm going to read, um, I'm going to start in chapter six. I'll tell you when I'm skipping down. Uh, and, then I'll, and then, of course, I'll read the gospel reading after that. So before I even get started with that, here's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, in very basic terms, uh, we're going we're gonna to see a very intentional, at the very least intentional on the part of the Holy Spirit, connection between Luke chapter 21 and Acts chapter 6 through 8. And I would say that this is a connection that is even a literally intentional connection uh, on the part of Luke, who is the author of both Luke, the, the gospel, as well as the Acts of the Apostles. There's connections that uh, he begins to sort of sketch out in, in chapter 21 of Luke that he then really robustly narrates for us the meaning of and the outcome of in Acts chapters 6 through 8. So in the simplest interpretive sense, what we're trying to do tonight is to get in view the way that Acts 6 through 8 is a fulfillment of what we're about to read in Luke chapter 21. You tracking with me? All right, cool. So here we go. This is a reading from 
the Acts of the Apostles, beginning at the beginning of chapter 6. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, like Timon and Pumbaa, Parmen Parmenas, I'm doing that thing that I always tell people not to do, where I'm like, be sure you read the names. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of, uh, others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, as well as the elders and the scribes, then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel." So the high priest then asks Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? Are these things so? And then Stephen begins to preach and continues to preach for all of chapter 7. We're going to hit some of the high points of that in a little bit. But for now, we're going to skip to the sort of crescendo of Stephen's sermon in verse 51 of chapter 7. All right? Verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died, and Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word. This is the word of God. Please stand together for this reading from the gospel according to Luke. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is the gospel of the Lord. You You can be seated. Our reading from Luke chapter 21 is the middle portion of an apocalyptic, a longer apocalyptic vision that Jesus offers to his disciples in their time in Jerusalem. A bit earlier in chapter 21, some people are admiring the finely wrought stones of the temple there in Jerusalem. But Jesus, seeing them uh, and listening to them, saying, you know, how how marvelous these stones are of the temple. He responds, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Which, given the tone of the conversation up to that point in chapter 21, makes it seem like Jesus is coming in a little hot. Kind of makes you think, like, why do you always got to be so dark, Jesus? Like, people are just enjoying this pretty building. But if Jesus' disciples are to welcome the life he's about to give them, they'll need to begin to see the world the way Jesus sees it. They'll need to be able to imagine a beginning, a new life, even as all the old established features of the world as they know it come crashing to an end. So Jesus goes on in his apocalyptic vision to speak of wars and insurrections, of nations rising up against other nations, of earthquakes and famines and plagues. And as if all that were not enough, there's our reading that we just read. Before all this, Jesus says, you will be arrested and persecuted and betrayed. And lots of times it's going to be by the very people who you loved and trusted the most. In short, Jesus says, you're going to suffer you will be put on trial by, the ver- by every sort of court that there is, and some of you will even be killed. 
And the word that Jesus uses to describe all of that suffering is that it's an opportunity for your testimony. It's an opportunity for you to bear witness. And so here's the counsel he gives to people who have that future in front of them. He says, make up your minds beforehand not to defend yourselves because, he promises, I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. That's a remarkable promise for Jesus to make to his disciples, who he's telling, you're going to find yourself at the mercy of every worldly and religious authority that you can think of. You're going to find yourself at their mercy, and it's a, it's a mortal situation you're going to find yourself in. But don't worry about it. You don't need to think about what you're going to say when you find yourself in that situation, because I'm going to give you a mouth. I'm going to put words in your mouth, and I'm going to give you wisdom, such as your opponents, the people that are putting you on trial, they will not be able to withstand the power of those words. They won't be able to refute what you say. It's incredibly powerful speech, speech that will defeat the enemies of the church. And yet it's a strange promise, powerful as it is, especially insofar as it doesn't seem to guarantee its recipients safety, right? Like, your enemies won't be able to withstand it, and yet some of you they're going to kill, and yet also somehow none of your hairs are going to perish. Unmistakably, for all the strangeness of this promise, nonetheless, unmistakably this is the promise of powerful speech, a mouth and wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. In some ways... The book of Acts is nothing more or less than Jesus delivering on that promise. The book of Acts is just Jesus delivering on that promise. He delivers on it by giving Christians the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we find in the book of Acts is not just that Jesus gives this powerful speech in the abstract, but that he gives it in bestowing the person who is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who will give the believers a mouth and wisdom that none of their enemies will be able to defeat. And more than any other figure in the entire book of Acts, it's this guy Stephen whose story most vividly illuminates the fulfillment of this promise that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 21. In the course of telling Stephen's story, in Acts chapters 6 through 8, Luke literally virtually quotes himself uh, from, from like back in Luke chapter 21. So here's what I'm talking about. Um, they could not, this is verse 10 of chapter 6, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Do you, do you hear the resonance there to Luke chapter 21? This is almost a quote. It's a very obvious reference that Luke is making for people who are familiar with his material. So Stephen's whole story 
What you really need to see about him, if you see nothing else, is how much he is set forth in the narrative of Acts as the exemplar of what it means to be filled with and responsive, appropriately responsive to the Holy Spirit. His entire story unfolds along the lines of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in his life and of him opening his arms wide to receive it in its fullness. What Stephen does is intelligible, not as some feature of his personality, all right? It's intelligible only as the fruit of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And what other people do in response to Stephen is intelligible, not just as a response to him, but always, and more importantly, as a response to the Holy Spirit. Stephen's name emerges on the pages of Acts as one among a, among a handful of, of seven people whose names are set forth by the church to take ownership over the labors of ministry in the rapidly growing community of Christians. In that community, the demands on the apostles continue to be the, the same missionary uh, like direction that Jesus first laid as a mantle on their shoulders at the moment of his ascension. But the church is continuing to grow day by day, all right? And there are folks in the church whose needs are being neglected. And so the apostles invite the church to, to consecrate leaders to make sure that those needs don't continue getting neglected. So Stephen's name is one of, uh, of a pile of names of seven people who are summoned to take ownership over the labors of ministry in this rapidly growing community. A certain kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit is one of the job requirements to even get your name on that list, right? So the apostles say, choose from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. So a certain kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit is, is one of the job requirements. And yet, even among that group, so all those people are people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? They're the ones who the church looks to to answer the call to ministry. But even among that group, Stephen's relationship with the Holy Spirit is the thing that sets him apart, even among that group of seven. His name comes first in the list, and we get some details about him that we don't get about anyone else in the list. So we hear uh, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. No one else gets that description in the list. The only other person that gets a description of any kind is um, this guy that's a proselyte of, of Antioch, which is not, I don't, you know, as important, presumably, as being full of faith and the Holy Spirit. So his relationship with the Holy Spirit sets him apart, even among that group of seven. And you got you to hear this. It's his relationship with the Holy Spirit that gets him into the mess that he finds himself in later on in the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit who at every precipitous moment carries the action forward to that moment when finally Stephen, falling under the barrage of stones, cries out to Jesus, receive my spirit and dies. When people opposed, when people oppose Stephen and they resist his ministry, they're not just responding to Stephen, but they're rejecting 
the Holy Spirit. And note this, Stephen doesn't talk about himself. Even at a moment when like talking about himself would be an advisable thing to do. Like he could defend himself reasonably to get himself off the hook. But when, when, when Stephen finds himself in a position to have to give an account for himself, himself is not the thing he gives an account of. Instead, what Stephen speaks of uh, is his opponents. He describes his opponents. And he, he doesn't describe them in terms, even he does in some ways, but he, he's not even like, oh, you're victimizing me. He doesn't describe them in terms of what they're doing to him. He doesn't say, you're treating me unjustly. I haven't done anything worthy of arrest or trial. Instead, Stephen describes his opponents in terms of their dealings with the Holy Spirit. He wants to narrate them in light of what, what you're doing. This is what you're doing in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing. He does that by telling the story of his own people, Israel, the Jews, right? And now we're getting into the part that we didn't read in detail. He tells the story of Israel, his own people, in a way that is virtually without embellishment and that is essentially irrefutable. He sets forth the facts of the story of God's people as those facts appear on the pages of Scripture. And in a way that no self-respecting Jew, much less a scholar of Jewish scripture, would be capable of denying. It's not until a very late point in his sermon that the sermon becomes controversial. He is sticking very close to the text, so close to the text that like, I don't know, something like a third of the time, he's literally just quoting stuff that is in the Bible. But there's a through line in Stephen's sermon a thread that he weaves all the way through it. And it's no supple yarn, this, this thread. It's more like a piano wire, a sharp steely cord glints and flashes brightly here and there at certain moments in Stephen's sermon. And then at the end, it's drawn suddenly taut, all of a sudden like a mobster hidden in the backseat of a car that you didn't know was there <laughs> until it was too late. You catch glimpses of, of that piano wire, that through line in his sermon glinting, if you pay close attention, throughout. So early on, it's very subtle, like in verse 9. So in verse 9 of chapter 7, of chapter seven um, Stephen says, the patriarchs, so that's like, you know, the patriarchs of Israel, uh, kind of a big deal. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So that's a fact. If you know that story from, from being a kid in Sunday school, the patriarchs, uh, Joseph's brothers, were in fact, I would say understandably, jealous of Joseph, and they nearly killed him and sold him into slavery in Egypt, all right? But this is like, you know, not such a great look for the people of God and, and the, the sort of paragons in the hall of fame of the faith. Um, so that's a, it's not a neutral comment, even though initially it may seem so. It begins to become more evident that he's, he's setting something up when we get into the details of the way that he tells the story of Moses. 
And again, in everything, everything he says is absolutely true, right? But he's laying a trap that we don't see him spring until later. So in verse, uh, verses 23 and 24, um, when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his relatives, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand. Hmm. It kind of sounds like Stephen saying, you would think they would know this guy's on their side, but they didn't. They didn't get it. They continue to tell Moses' story. So he talks about how the next day he goes and sees two, two Israelites fighting and he tries to intervene. And then in verse 27, Stephen says, but the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Stephen tells the story of Moses as one who is rejected by his own people and, and flees because of the obstinance of his people's heart out into uh, a different place. And, uh, but God came after him and God called him, right? So God comes to Moses in the burning bush and, and, uh, and summons him to be the deliverer of, of Israel, of the Jews in Egypt. And then we get to verse, something like verse 35. Note the phrasing here. It was this Moses whom they rejected. It was this Moses whom they rejected. The one that God called. That was the one they rejected, who made, who, to whom they said, who made you a ruler and a judge? Again, in verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from, a, from your own people as he raised me up. All right, now he's bringing Jesus into it, even though he hasn't said Jesus' name yet. Does that make sense? So he's like, the one that clearly, obviously was called by God, that's the one that our forebears rejected over and over and over again. The one clearly attested by God, that's the one they rejected. You remember the one that said that God was going to raise up a prophet like him? That's the one that our fathers rejected. Verse 38, he is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living oracles the words of God, the speech of God to give to us. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and their hearts turned back to Egypt. Moving on, he talks about how the Israelites, they had this tabernacle that they carried with them uh, wherever they went. But then there came a time when David, a person who comparatively found favor with God, right? I mean, indisputably, this is one of the heroes of the Jewish faith, David. He found favor with God, and he asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. God didn't let him do that, Stephen points out. It was Solomon who built a house for God, the temple. Remember here, the connection back to Luke chapter 21, the way that passage begins with people looking at the temple, right? Yet... Stephen says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands, as the prophet says. And then he goes on to quote, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Now, if I had to guess, I would say at this point, folks might be starting to get a little angsty in Stephen's sermon. Because now he's coming for the temple itself. And now it seems like he's beginning to say, 
Yes, even this thing that we all take for granted is such a, the, the sort of center of our faith. Actually, even that thing, it's questionable that it really ought to have ever been a thing in the first place. Because after all, God said, what kind of house are you going to make for me? And it's at, that, it's at that moment, the very next thing that happens, it becomes evident what kind of sermon it is that Stephen's preaching. The crescendo comes in verses 51 through 52. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart. He's calling folks names. You you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit. Look, if you have a good premarital counselor one day if you get married, I don't think I did this with Ryan McCall, but she or he may tell you that you should never use words like you know, like these like big absolute words, like you always do this thing because it makes people feel bad and like there's nowhere to go from there. But here's Stephen using those kind of words. You're forever opposed. That's all you do is you oppose the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to. Ooh, that's another one that hurts. You're just like your dad. <laughs> Look, if your parents said that kind of crap to you, you're going to be going to therapy later on in life. I'm just saying just like your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you have not kept it. I just, sidebar here. Where do we ever get the idea that Christian preachers are supposed to be nice? Where do we ever get the idea that Christian preachers are supposed to be nice? in what they preach. That definitely is the idea we have about Christian preachers. Like, just start listening to what people say about about preachers, wherever you go to church. And what you'll hear people saying in short is, we like it when our preacher's nice. But where did that idea come from? Doesn't seem like it came from the Bible. These jokers are not very nice. The Holy Spirit doesn't seem to move people to be sweet that often in the New Testament. My wife, Holly, has been listening to my sermons recently on our podcast, which makes me feel good. Uh, It also is helpful to me because she's a very honest, she's very honest with her feedback. Um, And I had a conversation with her recently where I was like, so how am I doing? You know, what do you think about these sermons? And she was like, "Ah, I'm kind of getting a little soft. And I was like, really? Okay. And she was like, yeah, you know, you're really always at your best when you're a little bit pissed off, when you're a little bit mad. And I was like, okay. So I might follow her lead a little bit later tonight on that front. Anyway, what Stephen's been up to all along, up to verse 51, is sketching out the shape of a generational propensity for obstinance, a generational propensity for obstinance toward the will of God, an inherited hardness of heart toward God's voice, an unholy tradition of resisting the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, what's happening right here and now, what you're doing, what you were doing when you murdered Jesus, what you're doing right now in this stupid trial, what you're doing is just the latest iteration of the very worst tendencies of our ancestors and forebears, the tendency to always resist the Holy Spirit. Somewhat unsurprisingly, we read in verse 54, when they heard these things, 
they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. That's ominous. It also is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your enemies will be able to withstand or to contradict. These people have nothing to say to Stephen. That's the kind of words Jesus put in his mouth. They've got nothing to say. He has been given a mouth and wisdom that has rendered his opponents inarticulate. They are enraged. They gnash their teeth. That presumably makes some kind of a sound. But it ain't words. By contrast to their inarticulate rage, Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 55, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is where the Holy Spirit really gets him all the way into trouble. So he's filled with the Holy Spirit. What's about to come out of his mouth next is because of what the Holy Spirit lets him see. What's about to come out of his mouth next is still that mouth that his enemies won't be able to withstand or contradict. Look. Stephen says in verse 56, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And up until then, Stephen might have lived. Up until he said those words, he might have lived. But if you've read the narrative of Luke, you know that in that moment, he said almost exactly the same words that were the words that got Jesus killed on his trial. These are the words that actually get Stephen killed. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired vision that leads to his martyrdom. His opponents, even in this moment, they are still under assault among, in the face of the barrage of Stephen's words. They're stuffing their ears to try not to hear them anymore. And they begin to stone him to death. And at this point in the passage, it becomes, I mean, if it wasn't already obvious, it it becomes exceptionally clear that Stephen's death is refiguring or recapitulating, reinstantiating Jesus' death in the world. We know that because he says, he said the same thing that Jesus said that got him killed, right? And then he says a bunch of other stuff that Jesus says, like, receive my spirit, which he says not in Luke's gospel, but somewhere else. But, the, and the, but then he prays, just like Jesus did, for the people that are killing him to be forgiven. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. So Stephen, it turns out, preaches by dying as much as he does, and more so even than by anything that he says in life. Arguably, he preaches the gospel more poignantly than any other preacher other than Jesus in the New Testament because his death doesn't just talk, his witness doesn't just talk about Jesus' death. It like performs it again. It recapitulates Jesus' death. He preaches Jesus' crucifixion with his words and with his silence. And implicitly by his willingness to be filled with the Holy Spirit to the point of being stoned to death, he also preaches Jesus' resurrection. Whatever else 
Stephen sees, when he sees Jesus at the right hand of God, and he says to him, receive my spirit, forgive these folks that are hitting me with rocks, he clearly sees beyond his own grave. And therefore, implicitly, he's preaching the resurrection from the dead. So we know that among the New Testament books, you know, this year we set out, we set out to read the New Testament as the story of the Holy Spirit. If you've got any exposure to the New Testament, uh, you probably know that Acts is like sort of one of the Holy Spirit-ish books, the more, one of the more obvious ones in many ways. It is so, especially because of what happens in chapter 2 in this thing we call Pentecost. But I think that we don't realize that the book of Acts never stops being the story of, of the Holy Spirit all the way throughout. Page after page, chapter after chapter, it's the story of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we stop reading it as the story of the Holy Spirit at chapter 2. We maybe pick it up again later on in chapters like 11, 10 and 11, and 15-ish, maybe. But we're liable to miss the fact that the Holy Spirit ends up getting Christians killed. If we don't keep reading, this is the story of the Holy Spirit in chapters 6 through 8. The winds that begin to blow, to, to blow in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, they continue to pick up steam until finally in chapter 7 and 8, the Spirit begins to scatter the believers in the aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom. The Spirit begins to scatter believers like seed all over the earth. We read, that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. That day, a severe persecution began against the church. I think we probably get the fact that for the first century church, a severe persecution is like the baseline description of Christian experience. Seems like, you know, pretty quickly. I feel like we're like, yeah, that's what it was like to be a Christian at the very beginning. A severe persecution is the heading that your life sort of falls under. Likewise, I think when we hear Jesus say in Luke chapter 21, look, the world is ending. You know, these bricks are falling. Nations are going to rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms, and there's going to be famine and plague. And by the way, before it's all over with, everyone's going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to drag you into trial. And you're going to suffer. I think when we hear Jesus saying that in Luke chapter 21, we think, yeah, Jesus was right. That is what was going to happen to the believers in the first century. And when we hear Jesus make promises like, I'm gonna, don't worry about what you're going to say, because I'm going to give you a mouth and wisdom that your opponents can't refute or resist. We probably think, good for those Christians in the first century. That must have been a tough time to be a Christian. But we don't think Jesus' words describe the world that we live in. We may think it was true, literally, for first century Christians, but we assume that it's not true for us. By the way, it's worth considering how historically inaccurate that assumption actually is. Like, why don't we think that what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21 could be our future in this time and place? Is it on the basis of history? I mean, it shouldn't be, given some of the things that have happened within the lifetime of people that are still alive on the planet right now who live in advanced democratic societies like ours, where Christians were killed for being Christians. 
Anyway, we think it's true for the first century Christians. We don't think it's true for us. One of the ways I can tell we don't think it's true, there's a lot of ways. But one of the reasons I can tell that we don't think it's true today, and that's heavy in my heart right now, is because we struggle so hard to get some of the very best college students that we meet to take on the very slightest risk to their career and their convenience in order to do things like make a commitment to be on the discipleship team at Wesley. That's part of the reason I know that we must not think that Jesus is describing our future in Luke chapter 21. That's part of the reason I know that we don't think we need Jesus to give us that promise that he fulfilled for Stephen. I know that because we struggle to get otherwise good Christian college students to take the risk, it's just a tiny risk, to their career and their convenience in order to commit to do something like be on the discipleship team at Wesley. When I watch people resisting the invitation or rejecting the invitation to do something like that, I think you must not think you live in the world Jesus says you do in Luke chapter 21. You must not think that's where you live and when you live. You must not think that that applies to us right now. Because if you thought we were living in the world Jesus is describing in that apocalyptic vision in Luke chapter 21, if you thought you do live in that world, then you would assume that probably you need to be getting ready right now. Like you're not just gonna show up on the day of your trial before whatever ruler or an authority and be like game to get martyred and to not worry about your defense and to say the kind of crap that Stephen says. That isn't like come out of nowhere. It grows out of a life. I mean, if you know that's what's coming, you're probably not gonna turn down any opportunity or very many opportunities you have to begin practicing even a small measure of sacrifice and selflessness and risk-taking with the things that you hold dear. Stephen's not special. He's not exemplary. He's not just like a, a super Christian. In fact, the way Luke wrote his book, I'm gonna try to explain this more later, like he's trying to say this guy is like he's the paradigm. This is your basic Christian, this guy, Stephen. He's not special. The Holy Spirit that got Stephen killed is the same Holy Spirit that's in you and me. You think he doesn't like Stephen? But he likes you? And so that's why conveniently he seems to lead some Christians in the direction of self-sacrifice and other Christians get to do whatever the heck they want? The same Holy Spirit that got Stephen killed is the same Holy Spirit that's in you and me. So if you're saying no to invitations to take greater ownership of the witness of the church, you are almost certainly saying no to the Holy Spirit. That's what I said. If you're saying no to invitations to take greater ownership of the witness of the church, you are almost certainly saying no, not just to the people that are asking you, but to the Holy Spirit. And I, I need to be clear about this because I'm going I'm to make this hard for you tonight, okay? I get it. 
I feel what you feel. When I hear people saying no, what I hear them saying is stuff like, I'm scared. Me too. Me too. For the same kind of reasons you are. I'm scared. Me too. What I hear people saying is, this might end up costing me more than I want it to. And I just want to say, you're right. In fact, it might cost you more than you're afraid it will. But whatever made you think you could have this life for free? What made you think you could have this life with Jesus for free? And before y'all start jumping on my back about salvation through grace and not works righteousness and blah, 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 it's costly to follow Jesus. I'm not saying it does, it, we aren't saved by grace. We are. But the people that are enjoying that salvation in Scripture, they are the folks who are going along with him. And they're saying yes. Whatever made you think you could have this life with Jesus totally for free? When Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a treasure that's hidden in a field. And sure, it's free in the sense that like, you didn't make it, you didn't earn it, you just found it. But if you're gonna get that field, all your stuff's gotta go. It's costly, but it's worth it. Whatever made you think you would find your life by trying to be safe with it, why do you think that's going to lead to your life, to an abundant life? It's not. If you think what Jesus says is true, you're not going to find abundant life by trying to protect your life. Whatever made you think you're going to find your life by playing it safe. Whenever Jesus said that those that want to preserve their life, they're going to lose it. But those who lose their life for his sake and the gospel will find it. Why do you think there's an exception for you? I'm going to come back to that question in a bit. But first, I want to tell you about how the interns have been crybabies lately. This last week in staff, we, uh, I, I just asked the interns how they're all doing. And the majority of them, at some point in answering that question, were like, I've been crying a lot. Uh, I keep on crying. Um, I mean, literally almost every single one of them in staff. And at the end of that staff meeting, I inadvertently, I think this is the movement of the Holy Spirit, but I, I inadvertently made some of them uh, cry or almost cry even more at the very end of our staff meeting because at the end of staff, they were talking about all the folks that they've pursued in the year or two years that they've been here, all the students whose lives they've poured themselves into and at, at how they're surprised to have to already begin telling those folks goodbye, even though we're not already at finals weekend. And some of these people are even gonna be on mission trips and stuff. And I told them that what they're having to let go of is, is the certainty or the sense of certainty that comes along with the decision to really take ownership over the mission. You know, it's not just what you sacrifice when you're an intern isn't just the time. It's not just the career opportunities. It's not just the way that no one the rest of your life is gonna know what that really means on your resume. It's not just your parents' misunderstanding 
about why you would take your degree that you or they have spent thousands of dollars on and be deliberately poor for a year or two, or two of your life. What you sacrifice when you're an intern is um, that when it's all over, that these people for whose sake you sacrificed all of that, you have to let them go and entrust that God's going to keep taking care of them when you're gone and that he's going to use their hands to take care of other people that you haven't ever even met yet. I told them at the very beginning of the internship, what you're about to do is an extremely generous thing. It's more generous than you realize it is. And I told them this last Friday, it's an incredibly generous thing that you've been doing. And they cried about it. I think one way of describing what they did and what led them to a point of tears in our interview, or excuse me, our, our, our sapping this last week, is something that I heard somebody say, say at, at Pete's interview uh, for, for candidacy. This is his first big step in the ordination process. We interviewed him last night. Some of you were, were part of it. Um, at the end of that interview, one of the guys on our board who is himself a pastor said to Pete, thank you for saying yes to God's call. Thank you for saying yes to God's call. Dang, though. Some of y'all keep saying no. And I'm not talking about you're saying no to grow up and be a preacher like, like Pete's going to try to be. Some of y'all just keep saying no to like, hey, lead a small group next year. Some of y'all keep saying no. And what's hard about that isn't just that it's costing the students of Louisiana Tech the potency of witness that we could have if more of you would say yes. But genuinely what's getting hard for me, hardest for me, is that I have seen the Holy Spirit stir in so many of your lives. And I've seen you say yes and yes and yes and yes to the Holy Spirit and I've been watching as he continues to move you deeper and deeper into this life of discipleship and seeing you respond and be willing and then come to the brink of what actually amounts to a commitment that's not that much greater even than what you're already doing and find reasons to say no all of a sudden, all of a sudden and dig in your heels and begin to resist. And that's harder for me, honestly, than if you were just like, I'm good. I would rather not Jesus and whatever I want instead. Because even though a person that does that is also resisting the Holy Spirit, it's more evident that you're resisting the Spirit when, you've been, when you haven't been, and then you're like, that, that's as far as I'm going. Most folks are going to tell you that your reasons for doing so are fine and reasonable. Your reasons sound fine and reasonable even to me. But what I'm going to tell you is that you can be reasonable and responsible and still be saying no to the Holy Spirit. And I want to drive home tonight that that is the real point of delineation in the body of Christ as it's described in Scripture. It's our yeses and our noes to the Spirit. That's what really differentiates the membership of the body of Christ. Stephen and others were chosen in Acts chapter 6, foremost on the basis of their responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. And that responsiveness is not private. 
It's publicly recognizable, all right? Like, when the apostles were like, find folks who are full of the Holy Spirit, people were like, oh, we know some people. So there's, there's something about this that's observable. Their responsiveness to the Spirit is concretely embodied. It's observable. It's a life of servanthood. Stephen is set forth and consecrated to a committed role, a modest one, seemingly, waiting on tables, taking care of widows. So he commits to, he's consecrated to a specific role. And because of his responsiveness to that, the Holy Spirit overflows the bounds of that role in all kinds of amazing ways and moves him to a life of even more extravagant self-sacrifice. But I want you to see that that happens not out of nowhere. He already was living a life, right, that was headed in the direction of becoming the preacher with the longest recorded sermon in the New Testament. Not an apostle, right? Not one of the 12. Stephen's got the longest one in the New Testament. Choose from among you, said Peter, the ones filled with the Spirit. Wesley community, look among you. Look among you and locate yourself for a minute. Among the leaders. Locate yourself for a minute. Among the leaders and among the followers of the people around you. Among you, there are people full of the Holy Spirit. Among you, there have been people just like you with your situations who have been extravagantly self-sacrificing for the kingdom of God during their time in college. What's your excuse for not following their lead? Or to take a page out of Mark Driscoll's book, which I try not to do very often, who do you think you are? I'm not going to yell. Who do you think you are? Seriously. Among you, there have been people just like you who have been extravagantly self-sacrificing. Who do you think you are? I think most of the excuses that people give are an answer to that question. Who do you think you are? I think most of the excuses have this underlying presumption to them that there's something that's special about you that lets you off the hook. There's this tacit contrast between you and the people that are saying yes. It seems like these days, frequently, that that contrast has to do with responsibility and often academic and career-based responsibilities. And I just want to ask, again, who do you think you are? Do you think your career and your schooling is more important than the people among whom you find yourself who are saying yes to the Spirit? Maybe you think... You can say no to the Holy Spirit because you think you are smarter than most of the people who are saying yes. As such, maybe you think it's fine for them to take on these huge responsibilities of being on the discipleship team at the Wesley, responsibilities that have no immediate usefulness to your career path, because for them to take on those responsibilities, they're not sacrificing as much as you would be in your career path. Because let's face it, as the smart person that you are with the connections that you have, you have more opportunities available to you. 
And so maybe tacitly you think because, you know, with like great power comes great responsibility or something. And so you can't take on the responsibility because your career is so stinking important and your brain is so stinking big. And I just want to say you're wrong. Among you, there have been people just like you, just as smart as you, who have been and are being extravagantly self-sacrificing in the way that they're moved by the Holy Spirit. I am talking about the interns, but I'm not, I didn't hear me say this, I'm not just talking about the interns. I'm not just talking about the interns. So if that's your out, I'm going to take that away from you too. Here's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about folks like Adam, who began taking on the responsibility mid-year this year of being a small group leader, despite the fact that he had not even signed up for that in the fall. Who, by the way, is an engineering student. Best I could tell, I don't know, one of the smartest ones I've ever met. For that matter, Adam, who has already begun taking on this thing that he didn't even sign up for and has already effectively, as I understand it, signed on the dotted line for next year. Look, he's got his crap together more than almost any student I've ever met in terms of like keeping a calendar, making priorities, and like just kind of being the deal when it comes to killing the game at school and being on an awesome career path. But listen, listen to me say this. He was sitting on one of those couches yesterday in the front of Wesley trying to figure out how to make hangouts at Wesley make sense on a scholarship application. And I was, and we were like, how do you translate that into like corporate ease that someone who might give you money to go to school will understand? And I was struck in that moment by like, it's so useless. Like the uselessness of ministry for your career. It is, guys. Like it's useless. Adam could reasonably devote the time he spends in hangouts to something that a scholarship committee wouldn't need translated. So it's not at no cost that Adam's doing that. I'm talking about Kaylee. A kinesiology major, and one that's not joking around in her major. Who last night at freaking 9 p.m. dragged her butt up here to Wesley to practice to lead worship tonight after no one else was here, except for me talking to board members in the parking lot. <laughs> I'm talking about Robert, who is every bit as much of an engineering major as any of you other jokers, and who needs a summer internship for his future employment just as much as you do but who nonetheless committed to go on the summer mission trip before he knew if he was going to get an internship. And guess what? The Lord gave him one. He's still got an internship. And it's an internship that's happy to accommodate his commitment to devote a month of his summer to serving people in the name of Jesus. Surprise, God made a way. Same story with Caleb, also an engineering major. So I could apply all the same things we've already said about other engineering majors here, but who, who decided, I think on our very first hangout, that he was going to sign on the dotted line to be on discipleship this next year before he even saw all the gory details that I shared with you all last week. And whose love of God's word already shows incredible promise, at least as much promise as his Zany personality. (laughs) 
I'm talking about Jamie. Who may seem small and quiet, but actually is fierce. Fiercely in love with God. Fiercely willing to challenge other people to do the same. And willing to show her love of God by saying yes to all manner of requests. I'm talking about Danielle, who's a damn Yankee for crying out loud. How did she get here? And basically a brand new Christian. She's making her decisions for next year based off what's likely to grow her most deeply in the knowledge of God and in comprehension of Scripture. Who do you think you are to say no to the Holy Spirit? I'm really sorry if I missed anybody. There are others of you that are saying yes to you. Are you smarter? Are you more gifted? Are you more important than Adam or Kaylee or Robert or Caleb or Jamie or Danielle? Are you really busier than the 4.0 students who have come before Wesley before you, who worked two or three full-time jobs but still were on discipleship? You know what? Let's just say you are. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, you are smarter and more important than all those folks. And you're more gifted than all of those folks. Let's just concede that point for a second. You are the smartest, best one that ever came in the Wesley, okay? How does it come out that your opportunities to secure the best possible career for yourself end up being more important than your opportunity to bear witness to the gospel? Let's just say you do have the best gifts. Do you think God's cool with you being so freaking stingy with them? Keeping them for yourself. Speaking of God, why is it that when it comes to responsibilities and obligations that have to do with God, we somehow get so unusually pious in our decision-making? Here's what I mean. We ask folks around here in recent weeks, you think you're going to join discipleship? You know, like, do you want to try to commit to do all the stuff that Jesus clearly tells you to do in the Bible with other people who want to try to do the same? And frequently the response is something like, hmm, I'm still praying about it. How pious of you. How pious of you. Look, pray about discipleship. Please do. Please do. Uh, I'm not going to be surprised what God says to you, but, but talk to him and let him talk to you about discipleship. Here's my question for you, though. When you got that phone call for the sweet competitive internship, did you take a little bit more time to pray about that? Did you tell the person on the other end of the phone, I'm interested, but I need to pray about this a little more. In the book of Acts, the gospel spreads because the whole church takes ownership over the mission. In chapter 6, verse 7, what's going on here is that it wasn't just that the widows started getting lunch dependably. The result of people signing up for specific roles and being consecrated to specific kinds of service and taking ownership over the needs of the community. The result wasn't just that some widows got fed. The result was that the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. That's the result of people making commitments to share the work of the body of Christ. And in Acts, the gospel spreads even more so because as one Christian 
pastor a long time ago said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the book of Acts, signing up to be on the volunteer list is one step that may lead you to the place that Stephen ended up. But that's not such a bad thing because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In verse 4 of chapter 8, we read, Now those who were scattered went from place to place, and what were they doing? They were proclaiming the word. They were scattered because of this great persecution that arose. And what they did along the way was they proclaimed the word in places that they wouldn't have been were it not for the shedding of Stephen's blood. This is the moment, Stephen's death, this is the moment where Jesus commissioned to the, to the apostolic community, you're going to start here, and then you're going to go to Samaria, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. This is the moment where the worldwide explosive expansion of the gospel actually begins to take place. It's when Stephen gets martyred. We've read several points this year from the book of Acts in our study of the Holy Spirit. And we've read, especially in the book of Acts, about how the Holy Spirit, it's the work of the Spirit to bring together those who would have otherwise preferred to remain separate in the bringing together of the Jews and the Gentiles. So we, we read chapters like 10 and 11 and 15 earlier this year. But now from this place, I want you to see that the work of the Spirit in reaching out to the Gentiles, it didn't start with Peter and Cornelius. It didn't start with Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. The work of the Spirit reaching out beyond the boundaries of what God's people imagined that the gospel would go. That work of the Holy Spirit, it started in Stephen's life and his yeses to the Holy Spirit. Already in Acts chapter 8, if we were to read on beyond what we read just now, Luke tells the story of the Spirit scattering the believers so that the gospel will reach beyond the bounds of where the disciples would have taken themselves otherwise. Midway through chapter 8, Samaria has accepted the gospel. Boom, checked off Jesus' list. Here, Samaria, ends of the earth. Right? Samaria's done, halfway through chapter 8. A little further on, a disciple named Philip is walking down a road he wouldn't have been walking down if the church hadn't started being persecuted. And he ends up running into an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading a passage from Isaiah. This is a person that's not a Jew, who at best may be thinking about converting to Judaism. He's not a Jew at all. But Philip gets to talking to him about the Bible passage he's reading, and sure enough, this guy comes to faith, and next thing Philip knows, he's baptizing this guy in a ditch beside the road. That happened because Stephen's blood was spilled. Then in Acts chapter 11, as it begins to become much clearer just how far past the former boundaries the gospel is going to reach, Luke reminds us again, on purpose, he's like, don't forget about Stephen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among those folks that were scattered because of the persecution over Stephen, some men of Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, and they proclaimed the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. The same hand of the Lord that moved Stephen so powerfully to say the words he said that got him killed is still the continuous movement of the hand of the Lord that begins to convert the Gentiles in Antioch. And what about the Apostle Paul, who makes an appearance, 
course, here at the end of our reading. This time, though, this is before he's gotten his name changed. His name is still Saul at this point, at the beginning of chapter 8. He's standing there beside the brutal massacre of Stephen. He's approving the whole gruesome spectacle. He's like, yep, good. Kill that guy with rocks. Within the span of a chapter, the Lord will have waylaid Paul. Within the span of a chapter, the Lord will have claimed his life, saying, I will show this guy how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Saul, standing there in that pool of Stephen's blood, will become Paul, as we know him, the great champion of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, a gospel that he preached and had to preach it that way because he was preaching it to the Gentiles at the ends of the earth. So that later in chapter 22 of Acts, during one of the many occasions that Paul finds himself dragged and arrested before all kinds of rulers and authority, one of the many times that Paul continues to prove that Jesus was right in Luke chapter 21, here's what's going to happen to you first. They're going to they're arrest you and bring you before these authorities. In chapter 22, as Paul finds himself among yet another set of rulers and authorities on trial, he tells the story of Jesus coming to him in a trance in the temple, saying some stuff to him, and this is the response that Paul gives to Jesus. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And while the blood of your witness, Stephen, was shed, I myself was standing by approving and keeping the coats of those who killed him. Then Jesus said to Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. While the blood of your witness Stephen was shed, I was standing there proving. That's how Paul tells the story of his vocation. It's with reference to Stephen. Paul tells the story of his vocation, his missionary vocation, as one that grows out of the blood-nourished soil of Stephen's testimony. Why won't Luke shut up about Stephen? Why is he just called your witness? When witness is the most basic name that Jesus gives to every single Christian. Your witness, Stephen. Why is Stephen the unsung hero of the New Testament? Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I mean, how can that be what it really means to do this thing? Because faith and the Holy Spirit, like, that's something available to all of us. A man in whom we see Jesus fulfill the promise to sustain believers when they're given an opportunity for witness and testimony. A man who receives a mouth and wisdom that none of his adversaries could withstand. Why, though? Why is it Stephen's blood that gets spilled on the pages of Scripture? Why a layperson, a volunteer, a guy that signed up to serve and clean up meals for old ladies. Why is it Stephen's blood that ends up being the seed of the church that begins to spread and multiply like an invasive weed that cannot be stopped? Why not an apostle? Why an ordinary guy? It's because preaching the gospel isn't just for full-time pastors or interns. It's because suffering isn't just for saints. It's because this is the gig we all signed up for when we decided to follow Jesus. It's because the mission of the church is dead in the water if it's only the leaders at the very top that own that mission. 
Why is Christianity in America experiencing such a catastrophic decline? Why is the church imploding? Not just in the United Methodist Church, but all over the place. It's because there's not enough blood being spilled. That's why. The church in America is in catastrophic decline because we're not bleeding. It's because we don't want to live in the world that Jesus describes in his apocalyptic vision in Luke 21. Instead, we want to try to be Christians in a made-up world. A world that grows ever more fantastical and unhinged from reality with each passing year. We want to stand and admire the great stones of the temples that we've all that have already pretty obviously crumbling and beginning to fall. We want to pretend like they're still standing firm, though. We want to live in the original lie of American Christianity. The lie that we can follow Jesus without sacrifice. The lie that we can be Christians without suffering or risk. And so it's no surprise that there's no blood to be the seed of the church. After all, you got to put skin in the game before you can bleed for it. And if you're not even willing to let the Spirit move you to put your name on the volunteer list, how likely is it that you'll be ready one day to be stoned to death? Amen.